my lords, my ladies, and everybody else here not sitting on a cushion, today you find yourselves equals, for you are all equally blessed. For I have the pride, the privilege, nay, the pleasure of introducing you to a knight, sired by knights, a knight who can trace his lineage back beyond Charlemagne. And so, without further gilding the lily, and with no more ado, I give to you the seeker of serenity, the enforcer of our Lord God, the one, the only, the knight of the romance novel! <laughs> hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about Romancelandia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's Let's rage! rage! Hey, Jackie. Yes? Why was the 10-year-old medieval peasant depressed? Why? He was going through his midlife crisis. Uh, Daddy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because they only lived to their 20. I actually have a factoid. But no, um, I knew you did. <laughs> we'll so talk about it one. in like 40 minutes when we get to the epic end of the episode. <laughs> so just remember that fact hey, for Hey, later. what do medieval postmen wear? What? Chainmail. I'll be good now. I'll be good now. I'll oh, stop. that was great. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I try really hard. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Well, how are you, Jen? Here. Are you are you good with all the summer reading things? <laughs> eh, you know. Yeah, okay. We're reading. Good. It's summer. It is. It's what it is. It is what it's it super is. fun. The kids are adorable. We're more than halfway through. Yeah, we're almost there. And how are you doing on your sign up goal? Because I know every year you try to beat your goal from last year. I, it's probably not going to get beat because I changed from letting the kids have two books to one. Oh, okay. Because they weren't bringing books back. Oh, fair. So I had to like be a little stricter. And no, this year is probably going to be really painful. Yeah. But it was like, I can't keep losing my books either. That's fair. So That is fair. And you also lost a site. So. Yeah. Okay. So it's not going to be good. But we're going. We're still doing it. Yes. Yes. So if you are in the North Syracuse, Brewerton, Cicero area. Bring my books back. Yeah. Well, also, if you see a truck with books on it, like floating books, and it's blue and yellow, wave as you go by. Oh, that too. Jen yeah. Guess that is me. Rocking out to Beyonce. Mm-hmm. Or it might be Sophie. Sophia. Sophia, yeah. It might be Sophia. Yeah. So who is mm-hmm. our lovely book truck person helper cool great and of course as always a huge shout out to nopal thank you for continuing to sponsor this podcast and letting us continue to nerd out about some of our favorite topics the best because this is going to be a full-on nerd out completely in total i hope you're ready (laughs) jen is not ready i'm right i'm here okay i took some advil we're good okay okay i think i'm i mean i had a fun time writing it so i think that's the important thing there's only like one etymology lesson. Okay. So, not entomology, etymology. Can't wait. Yeah. One day there will be an entomology lesson. Oh, but, boy. Um, content warning for this episode. Later on, I will be talking about rape as a practice of military honor and violence against women. So, I'll be sure to give a huge heads up for that one. The timestamps for that content warning can be found in the show notes. And if you've never explored our show notes, give it a little scroll down on whatever app, device you're using. All of the books, references, sources that we cite will be there listed and you'll be able to click them and go find them and you can read them on your own so before we begin 
I do have two minor corrections Already. from part one of this series. <laughs> listen, I listened the day it comes out and I'm like, oh my God, Jackie, why did you say that? That was so dumb. I figured your friends texted you to be like, wow, Jackie, we're taking your degree from you. No, I just hate on myself. So it's fine. <laughs> Firstly, I had said that the medieval period generally ended in 1450 with the start of the English Renaissance. I apologize. I meant to say the Italian Renaissance. The English Renaissance did not start until Henry VIII ascended the throne in 1509, generally speaking. And secondly, this isn't so much correction as a clarification. I had said that women in the medieval period were relegated to the maiden mother crone archetype, which is generally true, but only really in literature. In real life, gendered stereotypes were indeed strongly in place, especially in the upper echelons of feudalistic society. But it's important to remember that history is not one-dimensional. As Emma said in our interview last episode, people are people no matter what. Women were artisans, business owners, artists, performers, travelers, nuns, writers, warriors, and yes, rulers. In this episode, we're going to be talking about my homegirl, Eleanor of Aquitaine, an exemplary model of medieval femininity in order to help color in a little bit of the outline of what it meant to be a medieval woman. I also want to push back, as we'll talk about later on, um, the way that women were depicted a little bit in medieval bodice rivers. Um, and a spoiler alert, this is going to be a three-part series now because this came to be a very long episode. So we'll talk more about medieval bodice rivers in the next part. But for this one, it's going to be more chivalry. For now, where we left off with part one, we had just started getting into the birth of the chivalric code of ethics in the medieval romance. As a refresher in the medieval society of Europe, and especially in regards to France and England, knights had evolved from their original place as an equestrian fighting class. Under French culture, they were referred to as chevaliers, so-called because they were equestrians, and the French word for horse is cheval. The word knight came from Old English Chenicht, meaning boy, youth, servant, or attendant. It's spelled C-N-I-H-T. Following William the Conqueror's invasion of England in 1066, the House of Normandy is established, and Chevalier became one of the upper classes of feudalistic society. Linguistically speaking, following 1066, we see the birth of Middle English, meaning the Romance languages, French, Medieval Latin, etc., blended with the Germanic languages of the Anglo-Saxons, say Old English. Thus, loanwords were applied to the Anglo-Norman society of High Medieval England and knight, or plural knighton, evolved as a description of the chevalier. There's an interesting linguistic sidebar here about the evolution of language and how conquering societies influence spelling of native words. And Jen just like major side eyed me and now she's like, ah, chortling in the background. <laughs> so bear with me, Jen. I just love how a sidebar is like two pages. <laughs> to be fair, it is indented, like three mm. spaces over. Mm-hmm. So it'd probably only be like one and a half. Wasn't indented. And it is 1.5. On your sidebar. Okay. Okay. We're siding the bar. So, Hinnicht was Old English, spelled with the Latinized letter C. Latin letters were introduced to Anglo Saxon society along with Christianity around the 5th and 6th centuries CE. Of course, there had been Romans living in the British Isles since about the 2nd century. But really, it wasn't until the spread of Christianity and monasteries and monks and learning under Christianity that the language and that the Latin alphabet was adopted. Prior to that, Old English was depicted in runic letter forms. Hnicht was a Germanic word introduced most likely through Germanic invaders, conquerors, etc., like the Saxons, the Norse, and the quote-unquote Vikings, though it only meant the equivalent of a servant or a liege, not an equestrian fighter. Thus, Hnicht was 
probably introduced sometime around the 7th and 8th centuries and referred to the boys who worked in manors or for the various rulers of the various kingdoms that span the island. And I always feel really silly whenever I say Britain is an island because I'm envisioning like this itty bitty mm-hmm. living space when really it's yeah. Britain. Keep in mind that none of this language is really pers- purposeful blending. It just kind of happens. Language is one of the most naturally evolving systems out there and is mostly free of artificial influence. Of course, now in today's day and age, we see some words that get appropriated and used by certain factions. We'll, we'll stop there and um, get taken and mean different things. But for the most part, language is a real natu- really natural system. So the Normans invaded and took over, and they introduced the Chevalier, who, yes, in some sense, take on some of the duties that the Knick did. Remember from our last discussion, chevaliers were raised from boyhood in their lieges' court, their house, etc. So they were servants. They were cupbearers. They were page boys. They were connected. Then, as they grew older, they became chevalier. Only as time went on, connect evolved not just to mean the boy, but also the grown fighter. And written language evolved as well. In French, the hard C sound, the K at the start of words is a little more rare. Most examples come from loanwords of Latin or Greek origins, such as crucified, crucificie, or crypt, crypte. And so representation of this hard C sound as a C in written language was more rare in medieval French. So the hard C sound got written instead of a K, which was introduced as a letter from the Greeks. Thus, hinicht, C-N-I-H-T, became knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, and spiel. Cool. Got it? Got it. Sweet. Yes. Excellent. Knight thus came to mean a military follower of a king or other superior and was used in a specific military sense in the Hundred Years' War, which lasted from 1337 to 1453. By this time, the idea of what it meant to be a knight had also evolved, like we talked about in the last episode. Besides just being an exemplary warrior and a purveyor of the martial culture that was lauded during the medieval period, knight became its own social class with its own mores and ethics. And here's a fun game for you. Take a shot of water for every time I say mores or ethic in this episode. And as martial culture was highly praised by medieval feudalistic societies, the knights became an emulated class. Their mores, the epitome of manliness. And what were those mores called, Jen? Say it with me. Chivalry. Chivalry. Yay. Which also evolved from chevalier. Chivalry, chevalier. Cheval, okay. Mm -hmm. Today, our concept of chivalry has changed, and we mostly have the 18th century romantics, Sir Walter Scott, to thank for this view. We'll get to that because it's important to the romance genre, but we'll get to that later. From the 16th century onwards, the classification of knight lost most of its military ranking, like we discussed in the last episode. Really from the the height of the Hundred Years' War, when leaders began employing more mercenary soldiers, did did the shift of knights in chivalry begin, until by the 16th century, knights became a rank of nobility. In modern British use, knight is a social privilege or honorary dignity conferred by a sovereign as a reward without regard for birth or deeds of arms. Sir Ian McClellan, for instance. But... In the high and late medieval period, chivalry was a form was a highly formalized institution of principles that followed a strict, if unwritten, code of gaining and maintaining honor. It celebrated militaristic qualities alongside more quote unquote civilizing values that were associated with life at court. Then the changing social context of the 14th to 15th centuries detracted from the military ethos, and there was an increasing emphasis on the concept of courtliness as a formal court society emerged in places like England and France. So what are these principles, you may ask? Well, they fall into two categories. First and foremost, obviously, 
the military. Obviously, the knights who first upheld the code of chivalry were fighters, and so they observed rules of fighting. Sort of like, don't stab one someone in the back, but better sounding than that. These were prowess, valor, honor, duty, service, loyalty, glory, and nobility, plus or minus a few around there. Like I said, these weren't written down. These were just kind of going without speaking it, you know? These were all factors that made a knight an excellent servant to his liege. They were all about martial skill and courage, but also being an honorable knight to your fellow knights. In later medieval tourneys, for instance, if you knocked a fellow knight off his horse during a joust, you didn't go and kill the knight, but you won his horse. I personally think that this is another reason why mercenaries became so popular during the Hundred Years' War. There was such a culture of nobility with knights, but oftentimes you would have handfuls of noble enemies, because remember, knights were higher-class men. They were walking off or being ransomed back to their families instead of being killed. The Hundred Years' War had such animosity on both sides, mercenaries were almost an excuse, in my personal opinion, to reap as much vengeance as possible. Screw honor and just kill the other guys, right? This military ethos worked its way into the rest of the society as knights were increasingly emulated, especially towards the later medieval period and as knights became less about fighting and more about social standing and questing. For instance, hunting became a huge pastime for nobles, where it was, where it was a means of survival. You know, people do have to eat, and meat was readily available, more readily available than veggies sometimes, especially in northern Europe in the winter. Hunting also became a demonstration of martial prowess and nobility. Huge, elaborate hunts were staged with banquets and feasts and dancing and extravagant displays of wealth to, in part, sock the larder, but also to demonstrate that you had the skill to bring down the boar, the heart, the stag, the wolf. Indeed, deer parks, where herds of deer were kept originally as pasture, as a pasture for venison, eventually became part of the medieval noble landscape explicitly for these hunts. And to dive down my landscape archaeology rabbit hole for just a quick second, these deer parks were constructed so they weren't readily visible to the layman approaching the manor, the castle, whatever. They were purposely placed behind the state, like the building, so that only those of noble standing could view and access them. They were hidden behind hedges, berms, walls, and castle towers. Did they do that for fun or for food? For fun. So, like, what did they do with the meat? They would eat it. Oh, okay, but, but it, it wasn't was like, like excess. Okay. Yeah. There are, so an archaeological pile of trash is formerly called a midden, M-I-D-D-E-N, and archaeological middens from the, not like mitten, midden, from the, um, from this period are full of extra, like, meat that wasn't eaten, Mm. and carcasses and all that, and it just went to waste. Mm. And of course, we know they weren't super high on food hygiene at this time, they just didn't understand it, and so they would leave it out for a couple days and just keep shaving the bad parts off and eating what was underneath, and Mm -hmm. shaving and eating what was underneath. Right. So, that's why a lot of people died of worms. Mm. Yeah, fun times. Um, Tournaments also arose from earlier medieval melees, which were much less noble and much more like a blood sport. A melee... Or a pell-mell is a disorganized hand-to-hand combat fought at abnormally close range with little central control once it starts. It evolved from pell, which meant sword practice, and was pretty much a fight-to-the-last-man-standing situation, whether they be dead or alive. Tournaments, informally tourneys, were large, elaborate, usually multi-day fair-like spectacles that involved demonstrations of fighting, mock battles, and, in some cases, melee. This is where the infamous joust evolved, and if you've ever seen Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger... You'll have recognized my intro. Um, But you'll also understand that tournaments were medieval societies, Super Bowl, Kentucky Derby, and Olympics all rolled into one. 
They were an opportunity for knights to display their colors, display their allegiance, and of course, display their martial skill in times that there may not be much fighting going on. In Knight's Tale, there's a scene that shows the villain, Count Adamar, being called off the list. This just meant essentially that he was put on active duty and sent off to fight in the Hundred Years' War and was taken off the list of those who would be competing in the joust. And because I know everybody loves the joust, let's do a little brief history on it because even I learned some stuff. Tournaments evolved really from the 11th century in northwest France, where hundreds of knights in two teams fought in open countryside, often supported by foot soldiers. The name is probably first mentioned in 1114 and comes from the turning or wheeling maneuvers involved um, with horses. Again, they're turning and wheeling. And again, we see the importance of equestrian battles for knights. The aim during these battles was threefold. Capture opposing knights for ransom, a.k.a. money. Demonstrate the military prowess and to train. Now, during these larger battles, there were smaller practices. Individual combats with lances were, you guessed it, called jousts, most likely from Latin juxtare, juxtare meaning to meet together, and medieval French, yoste, to encounter. They sometimes took place before the main battle, reflecting the challenge of champions. Think that scene in Troy where Brad Pitt challenges the big guy and the challenge determines the whole battle. The earliest reference most likely comes from a tournament at Tournai in 1095 when Count Henry of Brabant was killed. The popularity of joust grew in the 13th century, partly because of royal bands and the team tournaments in both England and France. And what's really fun to me is that these were kind of like LARPing activities. Knights would come together in these things called round tables where they would emulate and play act at being in King Arthur's courts. <laughs> and remember the King Arthur part because that is important later on. It's just cute that nerds have always been a thing. And they were like the jocks, but mm. they were secretly nerds. <laughs> I need somebody to write that book. Mm. That would be great. The joust was popular through the early modern period but was largely replaced by things like the carousel and the Spanish riding school, which shifted focus to cavalry maneuvers and demonstrations. Fascination with the medieval period in the 19th century brought some revival of joust in tournaments, but it wasn't until the modern era and Renaissance fairs that we saw the joust on the popular stage again, as inaccurate and staged as those can be. There was a second key factor beyond martial prowess and identity that identified knights of the medieval period. Christianity. Ugh. Now, this can get a bit fraught because there aren't many sources, relatively speaking, that will speak of the importance of the influence of Christianity on knights and on chivalry without devolving into debates on the importance of religion or the presence of the Christian God. So you do have to sift through the weeds a little bit. But on the surface, the key factors of a knight of the realm of Christendom were largesse, courtesy, meekness, obedience to the church, defense of the church, moderation, justice, mercy, defense of the weak, and courtesy to women. I think that of all the traits of chivalry, both martial and of Christian, these were the ones that evolved the most into our modern perception of what it means to be chivalric, besides just being a good fighter. And it's interesting because now, for the most part, these traits are completely divested from Christianity when we conceptualize what it means to be chivalrous in like a modern mm -hmm. sense, right? Largesse, as it was, meant giving, and it's an interesting example because specifically it means giving in excess, spending money freely in a way that demonstrated generosity to one's friends and supporters, in the same vein as donations and tithing were viewed to the medieval church. And when I say giving, I mean like Henry, oh God, one of the Henrys spent so much that his court hated him and said he was spending too much, even though he was upholding this idea of largesse and giving. To the church, and that's why- they... In general. Oh, to- 
to everybody. Okay. Just like, here's $50, go away. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Or like, here, I'm just going to give you all these diamonds. Be my friends. Okay. It's the idea of like giving without reciprocity, but then you're still receiving like honor and respect and Mm -hmm. power, just not in physical form. Okay. Largesse. Obedience to and defense of the church, I think, can go without need for definition. We spoke in the last episode how the king and the church were the highest authorities in the land and to uphold the kingdom of heaven in the earthly realm. Knights needed to uphold both of these institutions to the best of their abilities and to whatever means necessary, whether it be through largesse or through physical prowess. Moderation was to be applied in all aspects of life, though having read a lot of historical accounts, I think that outside of organizations like the Knights Templar or the Knights Hospital, I can never say this one, it's either Hospitalier or Hospitaller, which just doesn't sound right to me. So it's the H one. Um, This was more of a guideline or an aspiration and pretty much a direct relation to Christian values on medieval people, just like don't live in excess, right? Mercy and justice in the medieval sense were wild there was especially towards later medieval times technically speaking one law of the land and that was the king's law so there was technically speaking a centralized legal system under the king but i'm sure it's not difficult to imagine that crime punishment meeting out justice and upholding law and order during this time frame were vastly peculiar subjects individualized to whatever part of the realm you were in just watch any robin hood any version and i'm pretty sure you'll understand for a knight to uphold mercy and justice, there was the expectation of martial honor again, not killing unless necessary, more so enacting ransoms and mercies and blah, 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 blah. But there was also the expectation that if your lord, your sovereign, your master asked you or told you to enact something, you would do it, which led right into meekness. Meekness wasn't in the sense of being timid, like we would think somebody would be meek today. Rather, it was in the sense of deferment. As I just said, if you were a knight and you were instructed to do something by your master, you were expected to do it and expected, like, you better do it. Which sometimes led to a direct contradiction of the two final expectations, defense of the weak and defense of women. With our modern sense of knighthood, there's sometimes this opinion that knights upheld the lesser, right? Steal from the rich, give to the poor, which is ironically Robin Hood. Um, When in fact, the only... This only extended usually as far as Christian charity extended. Remember, knights are always made, not born. No one is born a knight. Rather, you go through something of an apprenticeship until you earn your spurs and you declare yourself a vassal to the Lord who sponsored you or hire to the king and the realm and to God. This meant that there is no felt allegiance to the lesser, to the weaker than you. Knights, also remember, are an equestrian martial class. They're warriors. If you're some poor serf at the bottom of the pyramid scheme of feudalism and you're being invaded by knights, I hate to break it to you, but that knight is not going to defend you. More so, the idea of the defense of the weak lent itself to the growing concept of courtesy. Taking from Courtois, this is the ideal of courtliness, meaning much like we see it in today's day and age, the knight reflected kindness and respectfulness to those around him. But still, remember, if you time travel and you see a sword and a destrier charging at you, you're toast. Sorry, like, there's nothing you can do. Now, for the last big concept, the defense of women. Medieval women and medieval femininity, as we've spoken of, are weighty topics, to say the least. I've included some resources for you in the show notes to check out, but on the surface, I recommend scholars like Alison Weir, W-E-I-R, and writers like Christine de Pizan, 
Christine was a medieval writer who really went in depth on her life and the expectations of a woman of her birth and standing, and the texts are still applicable today. I mostly want to talk about this illusion of knighthood and the knight in shining armor rescuing damsels in distress because I think of all the concepts of chivalry that have survived into romance today, this is the most popular and the most erroneous. Oh. Yeah. Because I hate to break it to you, mostly they weren't rescuing those damsels. Oh, God. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Men are awful. Much like the defense no of the offense, week. No offense, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, we Thomas like is Thomas. the best one. Thomas is chill. Um, but much like the defense of the week, the defense of women generally only extended towards women under their lo- lord's protection. Their lord's wife, his daughters, the knight's own wife and daughters, his peers' wives and daughters and sisters, the queen, the women of the court, etc. There was still that sense of courtesy and that when a knight met a woman in some social context, he was expected to display courtesy and courtly manners as befitted his station. But... No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask. So, okay, those are the people he's supposed to be polite to. If he did meet just, like, a washerwoman, does he ignore her? Is he rude? Is is it, like, not matter at all? He does whatever he wants? It depends on the guy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you read... It's really hard when you're reading these historical accounts because so many of them are fictionalized. Right. Like Chaucer, who um, was kind of known for really being off the cuff. To some degree, you also have to be like, well, okay, but how much was he making up? Because mm-hmm. even to some degree, he's like, some knights were like, oh, here, let me help you carry that basket. Mm-hmm. While other knights were like, push the woman in the stream. Yeah. Right. Just because they could. It's just like men in today's day. And okay. Age. But there weren't rules to be like, this no. is how you talk to a washerwoman. No. Okay. I mean, you had your reputation. Mm-hmm. And the knights were such a small class, especially in England, that reputation got spread around. Well, what was more likely that you would be looked badly if you treated her badly? Yes. Or was it more like, haha, you got her, man? Mostly it would be looked on badly because okay. it's weighing against your honor mm-hmm. as a knight. But also, at the same time, it depended on the lord that you served. Mm-hmm. Was it a good lord or a bad lord? Yeah. Did he care? Or Starts was it, from the top. Was it a Robin Hood? Trickles exactly. down. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Modern business is just feudalistic society. I'm <laughs> telling you. It's a pyramid scheme. The damsel in the tower and the knight in shining armor are completely imagined notions. I'm so sorry. Sad. They're pure romance. <gasps> Even more so than the bodice rippers, which displayed That's dubious funny. consent in the late 20th century, <laughs> because that there. is so much closer to the truth of it. <laughs> yeah. And this is the content warning going forward. I'll put the timestamps um, for this section if you want to skip forward. But yeah, we're going to be talking about violence against women for the next couple of minutes. The unwritten code of codes and ethics of chivalry, from my research and my understanding, when they were purposefully used, were implemented as a direct dissociation from the earlier Roman and military state ideals of conquering. And again, what I'm about to say is a generalization and isn't meant to be a unilateral representation of a long past culture because there's a lot of nuance I really don't have time to get into today. But on the surface, Roman and earlier cultures were known for more of a pillage and burn sort of mindset when it came to conquering. Everything was game. And part of that game was instilling shame on your enemies, taking their honor. And a large part of taking that honor came from assaulting and violating the women associated with your enemies. Wives, daughters, sisters, mothers. They were raped, brutalized, killed, kidnapped, tortured, and on and on and on. All to perpetuate violence and to steal the honor of the man who was your enemy. To understand some of this ethos, I highly recommend books by Pat Barker, Natalie Haynes, and Claire Haywood, who deal with classical cultures and retellings of myths and historic events from the viewpoint of being a feminist. 
and to some degree with the introduction of Christianity and Christian ideals, that ethos of assault, that belief in stealing honor through that assault, were purposefully put down. And this idea of courtesy and courtesy towards women especially was implemented. Again, though, that only stretched so far. I encourage you to look into the Madonna whore complex where there's this antiquated Christian belief that women either fit the Madonna or the whore and how you treat them is reflected on that viewpoint of what they represent, right? So the washerwoman on the side of the road, is she a Madonna or a whore? Mm -hmm. If she's a Madonna and you push her in the ditch, then, then it's well, bad. it's on you. Okay. But if she fits the whore archetype and you push her, then, hey, it's okay, pat on the back. Okay. So... That's not all Christians, and that is not necessarily a modern viewpoint. I'm just talking about this in the sense of medieval Christianity. However, knights, again, were warriors. They were used as front linemen in invasions and attacks. They were the powerhouses. They were skilled in weaponry and defense, and honestly, they were some of the best fighters you could have on the field. If you were on the opposite side of the knight, if you were against his liege, and if he was, if he was attacking your place, your people, etc., you, as a woman, were not immune to danger. There's this modern romantic belief that I think really comes from movies where it's like this dramatic windswept battlefield and you zoom in on a night and there's music playing overhead and he looks up on into the tower and there's a woman leaning out. And she's got hair flowing mm. in the wind and her dress is fluttering. He's like, her, I must protect her, right? That's false. Oh, okay. All fake. All of it. It does not exist. Oh, that was very violent. Sorry. So I guess, <laughs> so what you're saying is if that woman was not related at all to like your Lord's wishes, you don't care. Yeah. You're not going to just go help a random woman out of a window. Yeah. Okay. Most likely not. Again, mm -hmm. it depends on the guy, right? right? Like this is kind of a generalization and everything is nuanced and everything depends on the person and there are good people out there and people are people no matter the history, mm -hmm. right? But for the most part, if you're in the heat of battle and you see a woman and she is not somebody who is under your Lord's protection, mm -hmm. then that's it. It's kind of fair game. And I'm guessing, is it worse if it's the enemies? Yeah. Women? Yeah. Okay. And especially if it was Anglo-French. Mm -hmm. So if it was the English attacking the French or vice versa, there's a lot of accounts of women on the opposite side being raped and being attacked mm -hmm. because they were French or because they were white or because they were slaves or mm -hmm. something like that mm -hmm. so because yes slavery did still exist during this time period yeah so it existed throughout all of time so. a lot of this also comes from the 18th century romantics but a good portion comes from contemporaneous accounts most notably the arthurian cycles of legends and we can end the content warning here for the most part we're good the arthurian cycle refers to legends and myths related to king arthur and his court and these legends and myths were considered to be from a medievalist standpoint, on par with the Bible to certain members of society. Like I said earlier, these knights at time were LARPing as members of King Arthur's court. And so they sponsored these legends, or they glommed onto ones sponsored by others, which we'll get to in a second, and inserted themselves into the narratives. I don't know if this is a dumb question. Yeah. Was King Arthur a real guy? It depends. Is that like a question? They're not really sure. They aren't really sure. I mean, obviously, I know, like, a lot of, like, the sword in the rock and, yeah. like, the lady in the water is probably fake. But was there, like, a King Arthur who inspired this stuff? Kind of. Okay. There was an 8th century Welsh king who I can't recall his name off the top of my head. I apologize. I'm not a Welsh historian. Um, who inspired a lot of legends. And especially he inspired the dragon legend, the white dragon and the wed, dra wed dragon. Red dragon of mm -hmm. Wales and England. Um, but for the most part, it's it's so boiled into legend at this point it's hard to separate fact yeah. and fiction okay i'm just wondering so yeah i wish 
that it was true mm-hmm. and i wish there was a sword in the stone out there that i could go try to pull and be like mm-hmm. i am king arthur but sadly i don't think so alas but sasquatch could no the normans meanwhile were notorious for penning welsh arthurian legends they spawned the whole trend honestly but remember the normans were invaders they were conquerors arthur was supposed to be a native welshman not a norman and yet here are all these invading knights who are pretending to be galahad and riding out to uphold his fellow countrymen or woman and yet their quote-unquote fellow countrymen weren't their own people there's this quote i really like from this article that i read and i want to share with you In historical fact, the Normans who wrote and read the Welsh Arthurian legends were the people invading, conquering, and often enslaving the Welsh and the Britons. So these Norman tales often tell of heroic knights freeing damsels from their tower prisons when, in fact, those damsels were usually hiding from those invading knights. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I was like, light bulb. So... I think we all have a good idea of where chivalry in modern romance novels comes from. Even if now we can see that most likely this wasn't the case, like the chivalry was not what it actually was. Mm -hmm. So then, how did this myth of chivalry come to be popularized? Well, I just briefly mentioned the Arthurian cycle, which was vastly important to understanding medieval chivalry. Indeed, when the 18th and 19th century romantics stumbled upon Arthurian legends, this became their own personal grail of literature. See what I did there? Eh, the grail, holy grail, Arthur and the holy grail. Oh, yeah. Okay, ha, cool. ha, 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 ha. Arthur and his court were romantic fodder. Not the kind of romance we think of today or that Jen and I usually talk about on this podcast. This was romance, meaning... There was a love story sometimes, yes, but more of a romantic notion of manliness and femininity during this time frame. Romances were used by authors like Scott and Tennyson to reflect revolutionary ideals of liberté, égalité et fraternité, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Dissatisfaction with modernity and a repudiation of the Enlightenment ideas of rationality, progress, and science. In other words, Romanticism was moving back to the natural state of man, returning to the golden days of yore and away from the hustle and bustle and grime of modern life in cities. Think Oliver Twist versus Elizabeth Bennet, or more apropos in this case, Arthur versus Isaac Newton. And yes, the early Normans were responsible for the first wave of Arthurian writing 800 years before the Romantics got their dirty fingers on the round table. But there was a second, lesser known, just as important influence on chivalry and romantic literature. And that, dearest listener, is the first romance narrative ever written. The romance. Romance, as a genre, refers solely to literature written in French and taken from earlier Latin tales, a.k.a. Roman tales. During the high medieval period in France, really from the 12th century and reaching its peak in the 13th, 14th century, romance took traditions from classical tales in Latin, such as the Aeneid and the Iliad, to lend weight and prestige to these new stories. French, or at this point really Middle French, was a newer language, especially as a written form of communication that would come to be the language of court and of nobility. And so nobles needed that affirmation of the longer standing Latin text to provide prestige to their new texts. And so, much as these earlier Latin texts did, medieval romance lauded dangerous Odyssey-like adventures, a.k.a. quests, mm-hmm. and dashing heroes who upheld their king and court, and yes, ideas of chivalry. Sir Gawain in the Green Knight is one of my favorite romances, romances, and is an alliterative medieval romance of unknown date and provenance, probably around the 14th century, um, recognized only by the name given to it by modern editors. 
The story follows the journey of Sir Gawain, a young knight venturing forth from King Arthur's court. He is obliged to go questing following the visit of the Green Knight to Arthur's court in a challenge at a Christmas feast. And Gawain ends up at the court of Sir Bertilac, a generous man fond of hunting. Following a few days' respite at Bertilac's castle, Gawain leaves to meet with a strange green knight in the forest once again. Bertilac is revealed to be the bewitched green knight, and Gawain's oath is fulfilled, and he returns to Arthur's side. The tale of Gawain, though, is not simply an adventure tale with strange green men, rather, with its lengthy passages of Arthur's generosity and Bertilac's hunting expeditions, it becomes a vehicle through which the medieval and modern audience can examine aspects of largesse and prowess within lordly chivalry, by example. And what's just as important to recognize is the evolution of demonstrated chivalry in this literature. Just as chivalry begins to represent the courtois, that courtliness and courtesy, this is what we increasingly see represented in these novels. And there's a very fun reason for that, Jen. Cool. Can you take a wild stab in the dark as to why knights and medieval romans were represented so heavily at court during feasts and displaying courtesy and chivalry towards people around them, towards perhaps the women around them? Can, can you think of a reason this why like, this literature would represent women? Is this like their fan fiction before the internet? So I'm guessing women are the readers here. It's because women were the ones sponsoring oh, the tales. Okay. They were paying the people to write these oh, tales. Okay. So this was like female gaze for the medieval period. Heck yeah. And to understand this amazing amazing movement, we have to look at one bomb-ass woman, and I don't mind owing you a quarter, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Let's give Eleanor a huge round of applause, please. We love her, and you're going to love her too. Okay. Wait for it. Can't wait. Eleanor was born in 1122 and died in 1204, meaning she lived to be 82 years old. Wow, jeez. Take that. (laughs) Saying that people died when they were 20. She was 82 years old and she was still kicking. So she just had a bunch of midlife crises. Yeah, Yeah. she really did. (laughs) That was fine. She was the first wife of King Louis VII of France, but when he was on the Second Crusade, she had some risky behavior. And do you know what she did? She led her own crusade with her own knights. Why? Because she could. Oh. And she wanted to fight. And she was mm-hmm. like, baby, I'm coming too. And he was like, oh, no, not you. She's like, heck, yeah, I'm coming. As a matter of fact, I have all these other women. We're calling ourselves the Amazons. They have their own armor. And they ride astride their horses, so one leg on mm-hmm. either side. And she was awesome. But did she actually fight? She did. Huh. And she won. Hmm. Except Louis... Because he, he couldn't handle a strong woman. Louis the Pious was rather shocked by this activity. And he took a vow of chastity and condemned her actions and had their marriage annulled in 1152. He couldn't take it. Couldn't take the jealousy. Now, women could hold property and titles in feudal society. So even after her marriage had been dissolved, Eleanor retained her land in the Duchy of Aquitaine, one of the wealthiest areas in France considering it was one-third of the French kingdom at this time. So she owned one-third of the French kingdom. (laughs) And Eleanor wasted no time, as two months later, she wed the Count of Anjou and the Duke of Normandy, who two years later, in 1154, became King Henry II of England. She was queen twice in her life. Their marriage united England, Normandy, and Aquitaine under English rule, and their five sons and three daughters meant that there was a considerable lineage to hold on to those territories. And, of course, this did create tensions between England and France, which led to a lot of wars and battles and dynasties and revolutions. 
and soccer feuds. <laughs> now, what's interesting for our conversation today, Eleanor and Henry didn't have it... Um, they didn't have it easy. They didn't have it with silk sheets, so to say. Henry was a bit of a philanderer, and Eleanor did not take kindly to that, obviously. And in 1167, she separated from Henry, Henry, though not officially. They were still married. And she moved her court and some of her daughters with her back to Poitiers in her home territory in Aquitaine. There, perhaps influenced by her disgust with Henry's actions, Eleanor created this legendary mythic court, the Court of Love where it is said that she encouraged a culture of chivalry among her courtiers and began sponsoring artists and poets and writers to create tales that represented the court of love. Eleanor's court in Poitiers drew troubadours, artists, writers, the movers and shakers of the literary scene, and spawned the romance. Eleanor's daughter, Marie de Champagne, would later in life commission Chrétien de Troyes, to pen the infamous romance Lancelot, a romance that focuses on Lancelot's rescue of Guinevere from Meligant, Meligant, I can never say their name right, um, detailing Lancelot's trials and tribulations and the ultimate rescue of the damsel in distress. Does that sound familiar? A little bit, yeah. Um, we smidge. Mm. What's interesting in a larger context, there was no recorded mention of, a, of an Arthurian knight named Lancelot mm. that precedes Chrétien's account. And he wasn't even named Lancelot at first. He was named Eric. It's pretty wild how fan fiction right. basically like created this always whole existed. idea. Not that too, but it's also just like how it actually started this idea of, of chivalry and like what we think of it. And it's just one woman who like hated her husband. Yeah. And that's where it came from. Because I wanted to ask you at one point, and then I think you kind of answered the question was it, how they felt about themselves during their time period or if this was something like we input on them. So I'm guessing, but like, she like made it up basically this whole chivalry thing i think that she was exemplifying like kind what she of wanted ideals. it to be yeah like the only example i can think of is furries at the moment i'm so sorry um but like how they want to live in this society that's like i, I don't know why this is the that's only a weird metaphor for that one she wanted to uh she created the change she wanted to see yes exactly mm. thank you for derailing me from the furry tree regardless from here and from Eleanor's Court of Love, which sadly didn't survive her imprisonment from 1173 to 1189 by her estranged husband for suspected treason, <laughs> we see romance flourishing, especially under authors like Chrétien, who wrote other notable works such as Yvain, The Night of the Lion, and Percival, The Story of the Grail. Chivalry and courtly love, Coutois, thus became thoroughly enmeshed in the medieval romance. And that, dearest listener, leaves us at the end of this episode. Yes, like I said, this has become a three-part series. Yeah. I am so sorry. We should have known, honestly. Yeah. So, you know. Tune in on August 18th for our last part of this discussion. Oh, are you sure it's last? I, it better be, because... You're sure you're not going to squeeze out a fourth part somehow? Well, according to the schedule, this is all we got, because then okay. we got to talk about firefighters. Mm. So, you know, there's a little spoiler for you. But August 18th, our last part of the discussion of medieval romances, where we look at the lost genre of the medieval bodice ripper, and just where medieval romances stand today in the publishing realm. So, yeah, that cool. brings us to an end. Thanks, Jen. Do you have any final thoughts, questions? No. Okay. Any any general feeling towards chivalry? Eleanor of Aquitaine. Knights. King Arthur. Connect. Etymology. I, I don't know what to tell. Like, knights have just never really been my thing. Fair. And fair. that this really isn't making it want me to be my thing. I will say Jen has never seen a knight's tale. So no, I made her watch the video. I haven't seen video. any of this. 
where Jeffrey Chaucer in Knight's Tale gives the little speech that I gave at the beginning. And, like, Eleanor sounds cool, but I don't know how to feel about her going to fight in the Crusades, which is already, like, a very weird war that I... Like, they didn't do anything, right? It was just the English, like, I'm going to go spread Christianity. Yeah. Like, which and is we're going to go gro- reclaim the Holy Land. Yeah, it's a little gross. Yeah, it's very gross. Mm-hmm. Normally, I would love an Amazon, but it's like, mm, for that? Yeah. I just like how she stood up to her husband. She's like, baby, I got my own fight. No, I mean, course. she sounds cool, aside yeah. from just like, mm, I don't know, maybe go kill the French or something. That's true. Though she owns the French. She can't do that. She can... Yeah, no. Yeah. I got nothing. So, Okay. Cool. Well, what are you reading now? Are you reading anything? Oh, God. Oh, oh no. I did just finish um, Kwame Alexander's new memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night, a memoir mm. in love poems, recipes, letters, and remembrances. Okay. And it's a very interesting memoir because half of it is just him writing like like a typical narrative, and then he splits into poetry, and then oh. he also splits into recipes, which I've never really seen from a memoir. And it's just kind of this love letter to his mother, to his daughters, to... Uh, sort of a little bit to his ex-wives, some of his life, some of his experiences since writing his very popular books. It was really interesting. I think I'm going to definitely do it for Memoir Book Club at some point. Okay. What kind of recipes? So it was just like stuff he would cook at family reunions. Oh, so okay. there was um, fried chicken. There was um, dinner rolls. There was turkey legs, like baked turkey legs. Uh, seven up cake, I think. One, some kind of soda cake. Yeah, I can't remember which one. Okay. Or Sprite. Yeah, something like that. Like, just recipes like that that he would intersperse and be like, oh, and then you should play this while you listen. Like, make it, which I thought was really cool. It was a really interesting book, just because I've never really seen that combination of genres before in a memoir. So Kwame Alexander Mm -hmm. is somebody I would really love to see speak, because he has this little book of poems. Oh, God, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's tiny, and I'll link it in the show notes for you. It made me cry like full on ugly cries standing at the desk. It was just so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine that him like doing spoken word poetry or like just speaking would be, I just imagine he has a really good voice yeah. and it would be really powerful. To listen I've never to. listened to his voice, to be honest. I've only ever read his, his kids books and I'm going to be honest. I'm not a poetry person. So that's why I was surprised that I liked yeah. that so much. I just thought it was a really interesting take and I don't see a lot of father memoirs that mm. aren't like that's ugh, true that's you know? true that yeah. this was very honest and very vulnerable okay yeah no Kwame Alexander's a cool dude mm-hmm. I like him so it was a good book to read and you should definitely go check it out it literally just came out like last month nice. so we have it here well on the opposite end of the spectrum I am I'm kind of in a reading slump but in the sense that I, I want to read books and I have all these books I want to read but I just physically cannot get through them mm. So I've been reading the same book for the past week. It's a good book. It's called From Below by Darcy Coates. And I always forget how good of a horror author Darcy Coates is. All of her books I enjoy, they all have major creep factor. And From Below is very appropriate given last month's um, underwater spectacle that we saw. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So the premise of this book is that there's a documentary team that is diving in an aerobic, an anaerobic a sea that doesn't have any oxygen in the water, right? And besides the H2O. Anyways, um, and they're diving a wreck called the Arcadia that was lost in 1928. And there were no survivors. There was one mayday call that came off of it. And the wreck has been lost for the past 80-odd years, right? Well, they find the wreck and they start diving it. And they start finding bodies in the walls. Hmm. And one of the last mayday calls that they received in 1928 said, oh, God, they're in the walls. <laughs> and it's it flashes back and forth between the last like week 
that the Arcadia is on the surface and one of the helmsmen that is on the ship and observing what's going on. And then the documentary film crew like diving the wreck. And I am terrified of scuba diving and I am terrified. I have thessalophobia or whatever the heck it's called where you like fear the open ocean. And I'm also terrified of like diving in underwater situations like Mm -hmm. cave situations. So this is just playing to all my fears, but it is just so creepy and it's very well thought out, and I really like Darcy Coates if you are in a horror mood. Good to know. So, yeah, there's that. Cool. Well, make sure to tune in for part three. If you haven't let yet, go listen to my interview with Emma. Jen gave it a thumbs up when it was she good. listened to it. Yeah. And make sure to check out all of our mini-sodes. Last month, this month, coming up months, whatever. We will see you next time. Jen, what do we always say? Rejoice! Bye, guys. Through the introduction, we are recording. Can you say something, please? Oh, okay. Yeah, here I am. <laughs> Thank so you. I thought you were starting. I was like already no. like dialed into my joke. I know. You were, you were prepared. Okay. Oh, I've got like a perfect footrest on this side today. Okay. <clears throat> Blended with the Germanic language of the Anglo-Saxons. Sick. Old language. Old language. What? Um, sick. Old language. What I'm are you glitching. doing? I'm trying to say old English and I keep saying old language. Oh, I'm hearing English. Oh, I keep hearing language. <laughs> See, my brain is hardcore glitching. Okay. Uh, blended with the Germanic languages of the Old English. Old English. You're saying English. What are you I know, doing? but I said blended with the Germanic languages of the Old English. Old oh, English. you skipped over it. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, this sounded like a sword. So you did that. Yeah. Cool. It's just my boob buttons. Okay. <laughs>